Hi, you're listening to the Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today for episode 152, my guest is NVK, and we're talking about CK Bunker and Bitcoin backups. This show is brought to you by Kraken, one of the world's leading Bitcoin exchanges, offering a high quality platform with high trading volume and low fees, no minimum or hidden fees. Kraken have 24-7 support. They offer Kraken Pro mobile app, delivering all the security and features you love about the Kraken exchange in a beautiful mobile-first design for Bitcoin trading. Some recent updates on the app have added the ability for you to add markets and list favorites, and you can also receive vibrating feedback on major actions. Kraken also offer an OTC desk for those seeking more private, personalized service for large block trades. There's Kraken margin up to five times and Kraken futures up to 50 times leverage. Go to kraken.com or find Kraken Pro in the App Store or on Google Play. Check out Unchained Capital, a Bitcoin native financial services company. They're offering a really cool two of three keys multi-signature vault product. You can use Trezor or Ledger and Cold Card is coming soon. It's really easy to use web interface and you still maintain control and you can hold two keys geographically separated. If you need to access USD liquidity, but without selling your Bitcoin, Unchained offer collateralized loans. So you can put up some Bitcoin, that Bitcoin is stored on-chain in dedicated multi-sig addresses, it's never rehypothecated, and you can share in the security of your Bitcoin by holding one of three keys. I'm really impressed with Unchained. They offer excellent services. I've done some recent interviews with Parker Lewis and Will Cole and Dhruv Bansal. Go and check those out. I think you'll enjoy learning more at unchained-capital.com. So you've got a Bitcoin seed, but have you backed it up? Go to cyphersafe.io. They're producing the Cypher Wheel product. So if you've invested in a Bitcoin hardware wallet, you've got a 12 or 24 word BIP39 seed, but is it backed up in a way that's fireproof, waterproof, rust proof, pet proof, and tamper evident? The Cypher Wheel comes in a wheel shape. It masks the words of your seed and you get some little tweezers and tiles and you put in four tiles for each word and that's how you back it up. So make sure that you or your loved ones have access to your Bitcoins if an accident occurs. Orders are going out now. Go and order your at cyphersafe.io. Here's the interview with Rodolfo. Rodolfo, welcome back to the show. Hey, man. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, this is your, I think, your third appearance. So uh, you're, you're definitely getting up there in the league tables. I think VJ and Pierre are leading at four times each. So we'll see. We'll see. I'm a uh, pretty competitive guy, man. We're going to have to record a second one right after this. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, well, uh, we'll have to wait when uh, Cold Card Mark IV comes out. That's when uh, we'll get you back on. <laughs> but uh, look, we've got the Mark III and obviously we've got the CK Bunker product and a couple other things to talk about as well. But look, let's just start with the bunker. So can you tell us what is CK Bunker? Yeah, so um, so CK Bunker is not really a product. It's, it's actually like a really free open source project, right? That like people can just sort of fork it and do whatever they want with it. Um, it you know, I'm sure other hardware wallets are going to end up forking and, and just making it work for them as well. It's more like along the lines of a BTC pay server kind of deal. Um, it's just, we, you know, we've been waiting for somebody to make it and nobody did it. So we're like, hey, you know, fuck it. We just make it ourselves, right? Uh, so, so anyway, so CK Bunker is a roll your own big go, right? I, I mean, so you have a easier UI and, and the server, right, to have a automated code card 
So, so let's say, for example, you um, you want to use multisig, right? And and you want to have another entity, right? Co-sign your transactions, right? Because you you don't trust yourself or you don't trust your position or whatever. So, CK Bunker essentially allows you to have a secondary cold card, right? Connected to a computer somewhere, uh, ideally a safe place, uh, running completely automatically uh, with some policies, right? Say like, you know, uh, um, uh, velocity, right? So you can only spend one BTC per day. Uh, and and you only co-sign transactions for you in that matter. So uh, just running through like a, an easy example there. So you have this thing running, you access it via Tor or on in, in, in person kind of thing, but let's say it's remote. So you access it via Tor, you have an onion address, it does all that stuff for you. You go to this page, you log in, and then you start your transaction either on your cold card or Electrum or whatever. You, and then you just upload your PSPT file for this to co-sign, and then it can even broadcast a transaction for you. Excellent. So let's talk through uh, who are the people who might use that. So I think off the top of my head, small Bitcoin businesses might have a use for this kind of product. An individual who wants to use it as part of his multi-sig setup might think about using this as part of his product. Who are some of the typical users for this product that you can think of or this software that you might think of? So I think that the initial sort of the, the, the low-hanging fruit people, right? Um, definitely small businesses. Um, like Francis already integrated this stuff and Cypher Node so that they can use it for uh, Bitcoin Bull. Uh, <laughs> it took them a couple of days. Uh, they're already like almost there. Um, so like most small businesses have this need where they need a separate machine to either co-sign or just run their their sort of their hot wallets, right? Um, and, and and you can automate exactly. So so you know you have your time of the day, you have your quantity, all that stuff. Um, you can add users to it, so that each user also has a policy. So you're you can empower your employees to do stuff, but you don't have to trust them fully, kind of thing. Um, and then you can have Another thing I see, I guess one of the reasons why we made this is that I got a lot of requests from people that being wanting to be the sort of like the the cosign service for family and friends, right? So, you know, they are the only one out of, say, their 50 people circle, right? Uh, the, the social circle who, who have the technical chops to do anything really Bitcoin, right? Um, but they don't want to hold the bags for friends and family either. It's not a nice place to be in, especially, you know, if something happens to you, right? You don't want to be that kind of responsibility. So what this does is it really empowers you to sort of like be that cosign bank, right? That cosign service for your friends. And, and, and then you, you show them how to do their part, right? And, and then you just essentially run this cosigning for them. Uh, another thing this provides is privacy, right? Because you're only really... Uh, doxing your XPUB keys with your with yourself, really, right? So if you're running this for yourself, you're not sharing your addresses with anybody else or any other service. Okay, so we could think of it like the more privacy-focused Bitcoin businesses might have a use for this kind of service or server or this CK bunker, as you say. Uh, so 
as I understand, you can set up like a multi-sig. So for example, you might have two partners in a Bitcoin business and they want a third key and then they could set up CK Bunker as their third key and they could maybe set it up so we need some kind of special spending policy where let's say one of the partners plus the CK Bunker can sign the transaction. Is that one way to think of it? That's exactly it, right? So for example, let's say me and you, uh, we're running a, a small, say, Bitcoin brokerage, right? And let's say we're not even in the U.S., right? So we don't even really use BitGo because you don't want to deal with a U.S. company, right? Uh, in that case. So let's say that me and you, being partners, uh, we can move the total balance of the wallet, right? Anytime. But, you know, being proper business people we are, we want to make sure our partners cannot either be coerced by themselves, uh, be a risk of being coerced by themselves, or have to trust in each other to that level either, just to keep things simple, right? So what we do is we can each do transactions up to a certain amount per day or per week, or whatever it is your, your time and amount, without each other, right? So we would use the bunker to cosign, but let's say we decided that we want to move all the money to a new wallet or whatever, the two of us could cosign and ignore the bunker to get it out. So that would be a two out of three. Gotcha. And so it could be useful in scenarios where, let's say, one of the partners is away on a holiday or something like that. And then they, you still need them to co-sign to, make, to pay some business expenses. But you could have set up in advance the CK bunker, for example. So one of the partners can spend in line with the spending policies set up in advance with the bunker such that they can you know, pay the suppliers and do those kind of day-to-day -day things so long as they're not spending the full balance, let's say. I mean, this is just yeah, a hypothetical. No, that's we're that's just exactly it. You, you totally got it. Um, that, that's the idea, right? It's, it's really to sort of, you create this, this thing. It's like a, a robo-signer, right? It, it gives you all the flexibility you need with as much or as little trust you want to give it, right? So that's very helpful, right? Uh, another big thing is, you know, just having uh, geographical separation, right? So you can have a box that can co-sign in a different city or different country. Um, that's super powerful because, you know, you're not beholden to local sort of coercion or, or local issues. Or, or let's say you have, you know, an earthquake or whatever, right? And you have to leave and you lose the wallet and, you know, you can have somebody else co-sign with that box in a different place. You know, having geographical separation, it's not just for sort of like, like actual security, security, right? It could just be redundancy too. You can even have two co-sign boxes. So you can have two bunkers co-signing each other in different places too. Right, I see. Yeah, so you could have like one in your country and one in like some other totally right. different country. Like yeah, with different users. Uh, you know, we support different levels of what we call remote hands, right? So we have different trust levels for the box itself. So you can have a local user that doesn't necessarily have the pin for the machine or anything, but he has a special pin to cosign only, right? But he doesn't have access to the actual private key of the device. Um. Sorry, let's 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 take a step back yeah. and just talk about the setup then. So just to understand, so for the users who's thinking, okay, I want to use this bunker thing. How do I do it? Let's say I want to do a two of three, and in that, let's say that's a that's that example, right? Like you and I want to go in on a business together, and we want to have a bunker as our little uh, online um, setup. 
how do we do the two of three multi-sig setup in that scenario? So you install Bunker, right, on, on, on your computer. It, right now it's a Python package, but it, it has a UI and everything. It's, it's fairly straightforward. I, I'm pretty sure within no time this stuff is going to be a one-button install on, say, BTC Pay or, or MyNode or Fully Node, that kind of stuff. Uh, I believe it's a, it might already be <laughs> one-button install on Cypher Node. So, so let's say you have the thing there, right? It's installed. So what you do is you plug in the a code card that that uh, is going to be the master for that uh, instance, and then you plug in the other ones, and you sort of create a multi-sig like setup, right? You create a multi-sig wallet between them. Gotcha. So for clarity, we would have three cold cards in that setup. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would have one, I would have one, and then the bunker has one, right? Yes. And then we would jointly together have a two of three multi-sig. Exactly. Uh, it doesn't have to be a cold card, by the way. Uh, for the bunker itself, it needs to be a cold card for now until somebody else builds for other hardware wallets. But uh, the co-signing parties don't have to be, they just have to sort of uh, uh, be uh, capable of doing that same type of multi-sig wallet. Gotcha. And they would have to have PSBT, basically. Yeah, I mean, they have to have PSPT, but they don't even have to be a hardware wallet. It could be Electrum. Oh, I see, I see. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's, pretty, it's very, very flexible. That, that was the whole point of this. Right, so as an example, you could have a cold card wallet and I might have an Electrum wallet. And then the bunker obviously has a cold card because that, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And we can jointly sign that. And I might have, say, an offline Electrum computer or something like that. And I bring a PSPT uh, file to that laptop to do the signing and then I would bring it back online to do the broadcast aspect something like that uh, you don't even need to do that like uh, so you can go to this onion address that it creates uh, and then you just upload the file there the the PSPT file and that's it it's, it's all sort of like web based but it can be offline web or online web kind of thing but it, it's like a web UI Right, I see. And this comes back to the, it would host a Tor service, right? And so for the listeners who aren't familiar, can you just give them just a very basic background on how they would use that? I mean, you would fire up Tor browser and the CK bunker would give you a Tor onion address and you just basically paste that address. You go there and it's basically just a website on Tor. Yeah, that's it. That's all. Because see, the the beauty of Tor for this, more than the privacy stuff, is that it gives you uh, SSL tunnel between your browser and remote and the device is fairly secure, right? And, and it's like a closed tunnel there. So there, you, you, your last concern about manning the middles and all that stuff, right? You really get a lot of security for free. Um, and, and, the, and what's really cool is that the private key for that, uh, that Tor server is stored in the code card too. So there's a lot of good stuff. Well, it, not really. It's kind of encrypted and then the encryption keys and the code card. I'm not going to get into the implementation of it. But the cool thing is that there is a, an extra level of security there for the Tor server. So that is the Tor online setup. And then what if we wanted to do a local setup? So let's say uh, we've got a friend and we set up the bunker at his place. Like he's got a garage or something and we can... Keep, he's a trusted friend between you and mm-hmm. me, and then we wanted to do like a local setup. How would that work? It's the same. You get a you get a computer. You set up a bunker on it. 
and, and you can just use it offline. You just have to bring the files there and you put it in, in the UI of it and use Cosign for you. In terms of um, what you have to install, so I was just looking through some of the docs I saw. Is it a CKCC protocol, which is the same thing that you install if you want to get your, uh, if you're on Linux and you want to use Coldcard with your Electrum, that's the same thing you install. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's ma- that's basically the main thing that you would that's have it. to install. You just do. You just installed. Uh, you install CKCC. You install uh, Bunker, and Bunker is going to have all its dependencies, right? Uh, there's a few. And, uh, you know, we run the whole show for you there. It's, it's all sort of fairly plug and play uh, with a little bit of command line right now, right? Because you got to get it there. It's, but, you well, know, it's somebody makes it. Yeah, exactly, right? I mean, somebody's going to have a one button for this, you know, in a, in a week or two. Yeah, I do think it's an interesting idea. Let's talk now through the setup of it. And, you know, if you want to set up spending rules, users, derivation mm-hmm. paths. So let's talk through uh, spending rules first. Like, how, what are some example spending rules and how would you configure these spending rules? So you essentially, you, you create users, right? And these users are actually stored inside the policy file, inside the code cart, okay? And then each user you're going to have to, you're going to choose how this user authenticates. Is it, is it like a user that's just the cold card itself, right? So like no people, no human input. Uh, is it human input? And if it is human input, is it a Google Authenticator or is it a password? Uh, we give you full flexibility there. So what's really cool is you can have remote hands. So, so let's say you don't want to fully trust the cold card to just cosign one BTC per day automatically, right? You still want a human to go and, and look at the transaction on the screen, right? This user, you can force this user to use Google Authenticator for a one-time uh, uh, pin, uh, sorry, one-time password, or you can just have a standard password for them. It's also numeric, um, and they'll just type in on the screen. Now, what's nice is uh, we give you full review of all the transactions on screen, so you can sort of you know, review everything before you sign. Um, and then we also give you sort of like different levels of security on the device. Uh, there's security considerations, of course, because CoCard is, is open source, right? And, and, and uh, we, use, we only use a secure element to store the seed uh, when it's essentially off, right? When, when, when it's unlocked, the seed is in memory of the MCU, the, essentially the, the less secure part of the device so that we can do everything in open source. Uh, the problem with that is, you know, there are sort of like very extreme possible sort of side channel attacks and things like that. So, you know, this is, this is a $100 solution for a $50,000 problem, right? So, you know, if you want to get a proper HSM, right, that, that's, that's like has all the proper sort of physical uh, uh, properties that you need and, and all the automation and all the certification and all that stuff. We're talking about a fifty dollars to $100,000 machine, right? Uh, now, you know, if your physical considerations are not, you know, somebody with side channel attacks capabilities coming to your, to your facility, right? You can solve that problem with a $100 device, <laughs> which is, you know, quite nice for a business, right? Yeah. And I think the other thing is one important, perhaps, 
neglected factor with Bitcoin and things like that is the first factor is if somebody even knows you have Bitcoin, right? Like that's probably the first part. So if they don't even know you're using this kind of setup, well, that's already a exactly. big factor. And, and, you, and, you can, and you can do things to, to sort it out, right? I mean, you can have, one is that the code card doesn't have to be uh, plugged to that computer at all times, right? I mean, you can unplug it during certain areas of the day or whatever. Um, you can also have a power isolator uh, and you can put this inside a locked metal box that's EMI shielded and that's it. So essentially think about it like a, a, a properly altered, say, small little gun case, right? That's, that's gun uh, safe that you put in a drawer. You can have that stuff wired in and sitting in there. Uh, and then you have the employee or the person that needs to put a pin to go into change. Or if it's fully automated and you don't need human input, then, then you can even sort of make that even more secured in something, even with a battery maybe, right? So even if you have a power down or something. Okay, so I guess if we're talking about attack cost, right? So this is something I think you've mentioned before as well around how much would an attacker have to spend to try and break it? And, you know, we shouldn't think of things in binary, like it's unhackable or attackable. It's, it's more exactly. just like how much should someone spend or how much, you know, technical expertise is required. And I think you've mentioned for the cold card kind of rough figures as well there. If you were to think of that in terms of like, would you think of it like, you know, don't secure more than X number of Bitcoins or X number of money on uh, on a bunker style device? Or is, is there any kind of guidelines that you can share for the listeners? I don't think there is a lot of guidelines because remember, right, if you're doing multi-sig, I mean, you know, let's say, let's say it costs 50 to $100,000 maybe more to to attack the the cold card bunker location plus time right uh plus know how and all. It, this is like it, it, it it's quite like a, quite an advanced attack this is not like your average run of the mill stuff right um but let's say somebody has the capability of getting to that right they still don't have the other leg of the multi sig which is you so you know this is this is quite robust in terms of single point of failure. So even if they get to it, it's not a big deal. Now, let's say you're using this to run a whole wallet and it's single signer, right? Then now maybe you, you want to sort of consider what's your what's your threat level there and how much you want to keep in it. Uh, because you, you could, this can run as a single signer as well. I see. So in that scenario, let's say it's a single signer scenario, then would you say... Don't keep more than fifty thousand dollars on it, or what? What would I, you sort of? It, 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 you know, like let's say you live in a very safe country and you and you're very comfortable with your physical security, right? I mean, then then it's not a big deal, right? Because there, you know, if somebody's gonna cut steel doors and you know get through all through that and 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 then shoot some security guard and then know how to do side channel attacks and. Do you know what I mean? It's like this stuff starts becoming like very Mission Impossible, right? Um, <laughs> exactly, right? So, so as long as you have the the layers and you think this stuff through, it will become very obvious to you what is your threat, like what's your your risk management in terms of amount of money you keep in it. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. And I think in practice, most people who would want to use this would be doing multi-signature on it anyway. So they might be doing two of three or three of five or something similar based on how many people are in that Bitcoin business. Uh, and so 
as you mentioned, you set up the users and they have they could either be using Google Authenticator or uh, some other kind of TOTP, uh, you know, like the one-time password style thing or just a set password style thing. Um, and then we've got derivation paths. So from watching the video, I think there is a way to lock it into certain specific derivation paths. So can you tell us about that and why would somebody use that? So... Um, it, it's nice to, for example, you could whitelist a single derivation path, which is really cool, right? So you can only send to a certain derivation path of a certain XPub. You, you can only uh, sign a certain derivation path as well. So you can say lock out uh, other parts, other accounts of the same uh, private key, the same seed, right? Uh, to me, that's very powerful to be able to sort of like set that out. Uh, on the policies. Sorry, just we might just clarify, just for listeners who are unfamiliar with that, uh, check out episode 99 with Andrew Chow. Um, but I guess the high level way to think of that is you've got your seed and then off of that, you can generate you know, an XPUB. And then from that XPUB, you can generate all these different addresses in different accounts. And maybe the quick way to think of it is like the derivation path is sort of like a folder structure, a folder location for a specific setup that you have and i guess you can think of it like this way of locking into a certain derivation path is to say only spend into this specific account structure would that be a fair summary you would say yeah yeah i I mean the idea is you're just saying you know you can only spend from this account not from this other account of that same seed uh in terms of uh, other policy so can you tell us a little bit about that i think i saw there were some other ideas there like psbt warning what was that about? yeah so so uh, let me just open my docs here. I'm, I'm starting to forget all the options that we have for the for the policies. So you can choose to have uh, like a confirmation message, right? So, and then we can check for absence of stuff too, right? So in the absence of say uh, uh, the log not being, the, not having a micro SD for the log, don't sign, right? Um, we can check for, uh, you know, like, so for example, if you want to, if you want to sign a PSBT that's non-standard, right, to our heuristics, so we check, say, for, we do some sanity checking on outputs, right? So in case somebody's trying to do some man in the middle on the PSBT or something, we can do it so that if there is a warning, it doesn't sign, period. Or if there is a warning that you have to okay the warning, you choose, right? So, so you can really sort of break this down to your level of, of need there. And then, you know, and then you have, so you have the whitelists, you have the, the time, you have the max amount, you have the users, you have the minimum amount of users. So for example, you can have a single code card in an office, right? And say you are the boss, right? So you are not in the office, uh, you want to, co-sign a transaction, but you don't want to trust a single employee. So you can have it so two employees have to put two pins. I see. So it's kind of like a way of getting multi-sig without doing multi-sig, if, yes. if you will. Or on top of multi-sig. I see. Uh, and let's talk through that process then. So if you try to sign, but you have not met the policy requirements, what happens then? Does it show you the error? Does it say, we require X, Y, and Z? No. Like, so what's you, the thought there? Ah, so this is the cool thing, right? Like, we gave you the option of, of having privacy or not having privacy of policy. So uh, in one choice, we show you the policy file on the UI, 
of Bunker, so you can see the policies there. Uh, in the other option, it just fails. I see, because you don't want to reveal exactly the spending conditions. What's your maximum? Exactly, right? Uh, so, so, so we give you the two options. And then we have sort of like the, the more nuclear option, because we like nuclear options, uh, where you can lock the policy file on that code card forever. So essentially, it can never be used again as a, as a normal code card or, re, or anything. It's just once it's set, it's set forever, and, and that's it. So we're using the cold card Mark III as a normal wallet, and then we can turn it into an yes. HSM, right? Like right. this bunker idea. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you switch between? What are the main differences that we should think of when it's in HSM mode or bunker oh, it, mode? You become quite obvious. It's like you essentially go into the HSM menu, and once it's set up and connected to the bunker, the, the cold card is connected to the bunker, it goes into HSM mode. It has that uh, the Knight Rider like little bar going side to side on the bottom of the screen, and it, it's got like a, this essentially like dashboard right on the tiny little screen showing you, you know, how many transactions went through and um, and uh, uh, like the time period, and uh, what else do we show there? We, yeah, so we show essentially how many approved, how many refused, and the time period left. Uh, and we have a little thing for the pin. Yep. And for clarity for the listeners, this is a Mark Three only feature, yes. correct? They can't yeah. use Mark One or Mark Two with it. Yeah. So we we actually tried to make it work on the previous models because we wanted people to be able to use their old models as this stuff, right? Uh, reduce some e waste. But the the problem is there's simply just not enough memory, right? Like there's a bunch of stuff we need to run there, and and there's just no room. Um, you know, we're talking about, we count bytes. Like we literally go through menus to remove spaces to, to fit more code in. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of sort of memory management we have to do there. So let's talk a little bit about this idea of the storage locker. So just from looking through documentation, I saw this idea that it's like another way of storing some random data, sensitive yeah. data into the secure element on that cold card or in now in now it's a bunker cold card. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what, what might people use that for? So when you have a sort of like a remote server or something like that, uh, oftentimes you have to store a few things like say your uh, Tor private keys, right? They're not necessarily Bitcoin related or cold card related, right? But they, they have to be stored somewhere. You can also store your server SSH keys. You can store whatever you need to store for that server to run. And then we give you a way to have a policy in which, say, for example, you only give the, the bunker access to, those, to that sensitive data once at boot or more times. Like you choose your, like how often you need to see that data. But what's nice about that is if there is physical sort of attempt at that computer, right? Some of the sensitive data is no longer available to that computer. Because oftentimes you just need to see that stuff once a boot to set up something. And then that goes into memory and then you're done. You can hide it. I see. Yes. Yeah, so this is like a security architecture point to talk about there. Okay. Uh, no, I understand that. Um, and 
there was also this question on the documentation around uh, a possibility of not using the master XPub, but using a derived path instead. So can you first just explain for the listeners who might not be familiar, what's the difference there between the master XPub and the derived path? So it's essentially like, it's like an infinite tree there. You can have, you can have your, your XPub, right? Your heart, like your first XPub uh, out of the derivation path there. But you can also derive another XPub out of that XPub. So you can have like a secondary sort of derivation path there. And that really just helps sort of like segregate things and, and, and give you like a whole other sort of set of rules you can have instead of, again, segregation of funds without having too many seeds, for example. Some people, the people that have the need for that will become very obvious for most people. Is It's a little bit sort of out there in terms of feature. And one of the main reasons why we wanted to keep this thing so sort of like loose in terms of features and, and very sort of flexible is because, um, you know, as people try to do like, like lightning, uh, network, uh, HSMs, or they, they, they're trying to do eventually confidential transaction stuff, or they're trying to do, uh, mixing services or just join markets or whatever. Right. Uh, some of that stuff is not baked into cold card yet, um, but people are thinking of clever ways. I just saw on Twitter today, some kid managed to use a cold card as their lightning channel private key holder, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, I believe C Lightning has that function now where you can open the channel from a hardware wallet and then close back into the hardware wallet. So... What's nice is, you know, as you make some glue, you can have a automated, you know, like hardware wallet doing your lightning channel stuff, right? So that's pretty powerful. Like one of the biggest issues with, with lightning is having a hot computer with a private key in it, right? So if you can just sort of take that out of the computer is a huge gain already. And I think you were experimenting and researching into this direction as well as poten of potentially having a cold card and potentially using Bunker as your Lightning hardware wallet. And yes, it's not going to be fully cold, cold, but it'll mm -hmm. be more like a warm wallet. And that's a bit more secure than just having the keys straight hot on the computer. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that, that's exactly it. it. It's Well, it really comes down to that idea of security in depth, right? Like It's like if we can add some more layers... Like any layer counts, right? Because it's one less, one more thing an attacker has to figure out. The attacker has to get over it, right? So, I, I think that's that's a biggie for for Lightning. The idea of having hot keys on computers is very like it, it makes me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, uh, so I hope that you know eventually somebody who knows and understands Lightning way better than I do uh, can sort of like make some of that glue work. Yeah. And now one other comment, and you mentioned this as well around the flexibility of CK Bunker, but I'll tell you one thing that I'm seeing, even for me, when I was trying to research this, I was almost like there's too many options and mm -hmm. I had to try to make, think up examples to try and make it real for the listener because sometimes when people are given almost too much choice, they don't know what is this actually good for? What is it actually usable for? And again, this is early stuff. I appreciate that, uh, but it might 
maybe one direction that this can develop is to have a few kind of stock standard setups, right? So this two of three example that we were talking through, that might be an easy, common stock standard setup that people might use CK Bunker for. Do you have any other ideas around what would be like a typical use, a typical stock standard setup? Well, you know us, right? Like we're terrible at making like stuff that's like noob friendly. So... Uh, one thing was really cool, uh, Peter, my co-founder, like he went on a rampage on Twitter and sort of giving examples and we added those to the homepage of the Bunker project. So you can see those there. So, so yeah, so I, I guess some ideas and, and these could be automated, right? Or they could be wizarded by, uh, either users or us or the stuff will get easy. It's already easy. It's just that you have to sort of read the manual, right? Uh, hopefully soon you don't have to read the menu. You just press buttons and the stuff is done for you. But uh, so yeah, so the, the examples from the actual homepage right now are so geographic separation. You have you know code card on the other side and it cosigns for you. Uh, another one is uh, is is to to have your uh, your warm wallet, um, you know, doing some spending for you to a whitelist. Um, Say this is your in-between uh, removing funds from an exchange uh, and you need sort of like an in-between you and you're very cold to go to your operational wallet. Uh, businesses understand operational wallets. You do need one, right? You take, you, you, you earn the BTC and then you need to figure out how much I need for bills, how much I need for that, and then how much is going to go to cold storage, right? So this is very good for that. Um, you know, you can have one that's like, say, the meet me in the bunker TM. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so it's like a three out of five and maybe two of them don't actually have cold cards. They just have uh, uh, off, a Google Auth uh, authenticator to co-sign. Uh, it's super useful to have people that don't actually have uh, to Bitcoin sign. They're just password signing kind of thing. Um, because it's like last wallet you have to set up and stuff. So it's very good for managers kind of thing. Uh, you can, you can have, uh, a, a very good way to do message signing. Uh, this is just easy for people to do it in general now, cause there's a web for it, a web UI for it. Um, you know, and then you have your storage locker. Maybe that's again, it's your like server keys or your database keys or something like that. Um, and then you have your classic sort of, you know, I am the person who co-signs for the whole family. <laughs> so, you know, you create different derivation paths for each part for each person, and that's how you do it. Uh, maybe you have multiple instances of bunker running for each person as well. Uh, I'm sure somebody will come up with a nice little Raspberry Pi solution for that eventually, you know. That could be a business model for them as well. They could yep. say, hey, I'll set up Bunker for you. And then mm -hmm. you and your family can have your own little Bunker thing yep. going. And you don't even have to trust them, which is really cool, right? I mean, the worst that can happen is they, they have one of the keys out of the multi-sig. So they can't really rob you. So, so that's sort of where it's at now. Uh, I think once there's some videos, there's some people using it, it's going to become a lot more obvious. Just we didn't want to pigeonhole this into a single solution sort of thing, because this is already for advanced people anyways, like not, not super advanced, but this is for people who can sort of run their own BTC pay kind of deal. So might as well give people the flexibility and, and wait for them to sort of start 
pigeonholing some solutions out of this. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, so look, let's uh, let's change it up a little bit. Let's talk more now more about the cold card. So, uh, you recently were you you were just telling me that you made the cold card documentation public as well, and you've got the GitHub page going for that. What was the uh, thinking there? So, um, you know, we have like good technical documentation, uh, but I I think our documentation can definitely be improved in terms of like you know just more more noob friendly sort of language or examples of thing like that. So uh, we decided to sort of move all the documentation for all, like for our current projects into a single repo and make it public. Um, and so that, you know, people can help. It's, it's like, if you don't like the documentation, well, then make a pull request and, and help us improve it kind of thing. Uh, so if, if people want to help, we'll be, we'll be very grateful. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, github.com slash coinkite slash coinkite dash docs, but th th there's links everywhere and it's on our telegram as well. People have different ways that they're doing support channels as well, right? So some Bitcoin projects, they're big on telegram. So it's kind of go to the telegram and ask the questions there. And other people are just like firing off questions on Twitter or on Bitcoin, mm -hmm. Reddit and elsewhere so there's all these different places and then some people are just not even in that world at all and they're just literally going to the website you know coldcardwallet.com or coinkite.com and expecting you know okay everything should just be there right so that's right and, and i think like people also ask questions differently they use like different language so like just sometimes just having the same answer or the same question just asked differently helps a lot you, you know it's like the way you ask your question is kind of there somewhere helps uh, and we hope to add search at some point soon as well to the docs. And then that should sort of like really make it a lot easier. We, we also needed to document bunker, which had a quite a bit of docs. Uh, so yeah, there right. was also motivation to finally, you know, move all this stuff into some place that other people can contribute. Yeah. And I think if anyone is a, the sort of person who is often helping answer questions, then if they're starting to answer the same question many times, then it starts to make some sense for them to do a pull request, put the question and the answer and That's put right. that into the documentation there. And then whenever they get the question, they can just link them to that exact right. point where they've already answered the question. It's very efficient. Yeah, so that's something people can look at. Uh, and so uh, also wanted to talk about secure elements, right? So there is a big, again, a lot of back and forward. I don't want to get too like toxic or whatever, but I think it might just be useful to talk about, you know, just the facts, right? What are the ways of thinking about keeping your keys secure in Bitcoin? And uh, some people... Uh, are more adamant, let's say, about the use of secure elements. And then you've got other people who are more, let's say, they're, you know, and trying to be neutral, trying to be, you know, fair to their point of view, they might think of it more like, hey, everything needs to be open source. Otherwise, I don't know if I can trust what's inside that secure element. What's your thought on that? So, so that's sort of like a false premise. It, it's, unfortunately, hardware is, it's like, it's a very deep, very deep technical sort of pigeon like like a like rabbit hole but I, I mean there really is no aside from a few sort of projects that are not really out there yet uh and I don't know if they'll ever ship there there really is no really fully open source hardware right uh unless you have your own electron microscope at home and you can check the dye of the microchips you're using you are trusting somebody right 
So, so then the question is, how can you minimize that trust as much as possible, right? And there are ways, right? I mean, there is our approach, there's the, the Trezor approach, there's the Ledger approach, right? Um, so, but secure elements, what, what are, so secure elements are essentially like a, a purposely made microchip to keep secrets secure, right? That's it. That's, that's its purpose, right? And then there is many flavors of that, many ways to go about it, many ways to do it. Uh, and then you have general purpose micros, right? That are essentially like Swiss cheeses, right? Like they just have holes everywhere. They were not meant to do security. They just, have, you know, they're just doing their job, running a toaster, running a microwave, running a hardware wallet, right? It's the same microchips that are in your microwave. They are in your hardware wallet kind of thing. Okay. Uh, What's cool about simple MCUs, right? The, the simpler uh, microchips that Trezor and Coldcard use uh, that are open um, is that they have a lot less complexity, so less attack surface, right? But they're still completely full of holes. So what, what we do, Coldcard, is we have a very dumb secure element. The secure element that we use, it's actually fixed function. So... Essentially, you can't really like run cold on it, right? What, the, what this secure element provides to us is like essentially a storage locker. And, and then it has, of course, a few sort of like crypto calculators in there. We call them crypto accelerators, but let's call them crypto calculators in there that can do crypto for you. Um, they don't do the Bitcoin curve. So we're not doing any Bitcoin stuff with those closed source calculators. Right, we're only using the secure storage locker of that chip, which is very good. Right? Is it infallible? No. There is ways of attacking, and it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. Essentially, uh, could you maybe create an attack? That, anyways, point is, it's very expensive to attack. Right? Uh, and then what we do is, uh, we actually keep your seed encrypted with the open source code in the secure element. So the secure element doesn't actually have visibility to your seed either. So if somebody, if, if say if there is like a, a backdoor by the manufacturer of that secure element, right? Um, they still cannot see your seed. They would have to get the other part uh, from the MCU to be able to decrypt that. And we use one time pad, which is the only non-cipher that's essentially unbreakable. Um, to break that, they'd have to attack the other chip as well. So in our case, you essentially have to attack two chips and you have to have a, a, an efficiency, like a, a, a success rate of 100% for both, or you can't marry them together and get that key extracted and also decrypted. So it's a very, 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 very advanced attack, right? And that was our solution to find the right sort of compromise, the right set of trade-offs so that we can have a fully open source device. All the code is verifiable. Uh, and because it's a very dumb secure element with no code of ours in there, um, you can actually buy that secure element from DigiKey, say, right? You could desolder it, take the one that we provide you with, put a new one in, reload the firmware, and prove to yourself that we don't have any shenanigans running because you know, we did not provide you that chip, right? Uh, in the case of Trezor, 
they have no secure element. There's there's essentially zero physical security, right? That the device, uh, I don't know if they designed it this way, but now the the literature on it, the the marketing on it, really uh, says you know there is no physical security. This is essentially a uh, a layer against computer malware. Use your twenty fifth word, right? We advise everybody to use the twenty fifth word, right? Everybody should use uh, a passphrase, uh, regardless uh, if it's for real hodo. But you know there is again multiple levels of needs, so. You don't want to have a 25th word for your operational wallet, but you also may want this to be secured against an evil made attack or against, uh, you know, some basic physical security. Um, that's what we personally wanted to achieve, right? It's, it's like just raise that cost of attack to a certain degree. And, and we think Mark III is there in a, in a very sort of good spot. Uh, and then there's Ledger. Ledger has a true and tested approach to this. Uh, you know, it's it's a very known approach in the pin and chip sort of like a security industry. Uh, it's a very fair approach, but there is no choice. It has to be closed source because they're using uh, a bunch of the, the libraries of those chips. Probably I, I don't have full visibility to it, but I assume that's because they're using a lot of the libraries, the vendor libraries. Um, and probably part of their certification, who knows, right? But essentially the base layer of their solution, their apps could be all sort of like open source, but the base layer of their solution, the, the actual sort of, let's call it the chip OS, right? Because they're running everything inside the secure element uh, is fully closed source. So, and, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if they have pool with the, with the vendors to maybe change that one day, uh, or maybe it's, you know, maybe it's just a, listen, it's a lot easier to do security products being closed source. That's the honesty about it. It's like, I'd love if I could get away with being closed source. It's just, I wouldn't trust it myself. So I didn't do it, but it's a lot nicer because you, all the script kitties, all the lower level researchers, they're not going to be able to find a lot of your problems because the source is not there. You cannot just go read the bugs. <laughs> And uh, it, it is a bit of a challenging thing because, as I recall, Ledger came out with their Don John Ledger blog post talking about the unfixable seed extraction attack available on the Trezor mm-hmm. 1. That was a little while ago. And then more recently, Kraken Security Labs, uh, disclosure, my podcast is sponsored by Kraken, but Kraken Security Labs came out with basically some of the more details around how to actually do the seed extraction attack against both the Trezor 1 and the Trezor Model T. And uh, this I, I, kind of does come into that. Yeah. yeah, I was a little bit annoyed about that post because I, you know, to me, it felt like just reusing the the knowledge of somebody else. Like, I got to give it to the guys from Ledger. I mean, at least those guys are doing all this stuff from scratch. I have had many back and forth with them. Uh, they are trying to attack our stuff too. They, you know, they were successful with some stuff, not with everything. They're trying to work on the Mark III now, still waiting to see if they manage. Uh, they've managed to find flaws in chips that suppliers get. Like, if somebody's putting that kind of effort and money into it, um, you know, at least, you know, there is a level of wasted time for very obscure, expensive attacks. Uh, but at least we get something out of it, right? Like, you have, like, professional people trying to attack stuff. Uh, I guess, like, 
part of what annoys me is sort of like the the PR cycles out of this stuff. The because it, it's fudging like the 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 this industry, right? Like it's making everybody like sort of make stupid decisions, right? So people hear about some attack and they immediately sort of try to move their hodl somewhere else and they might screw themselves, right? Um, so I, I I think it's important, but I, I think the whole sort of trying to to snipe the competitor with attacks is sort of getting old. Um, and, you know, like there is diminishing returns there. Um, I think that I, I, I really welcome, especially very advanced stuff that costs a lot of money that, you know, like you might not necessarily even be able to afford uh, as, as, a, as, as a vendor. Uh, we're talking about like, you know, like million dollar equipment plus time plus know-how people. Like it's like it's it's serious stuff, right? Um, on top, of, and, and this is just to do research on hardware. This is not people actually making anything, right? Um, so there is there is a lot to be gained by the industry for that. Uh, but what I really sort of got tired of it is like you know, lower level research done with research of somebody else for blog posts and PR. Uh, I think that's sort of like detrimental to the industry, it just creates more paranoia and it's not helpful. Right. And I, I can appreciate that, you know, one of the important things that we're always talking about with Bitcoin, not your keys, not your coins. And I wouldn't want to have users be scared out of self-custody, right? And so... I wouldn't want them to think, oh, I'd rather leave it on the exchange because I think that's way worse, right? I would rather, you know, I think they should um, take those steps. And though we're kind of living in this world where it yeah. can be confusing for a, for a person who's like a newcomer to the industry, they might think, oh, no, I thought that thing got hacked or I saw some blog post or I heard a news article or whatever. Um, so it, it as long as the message is that you should try to, you know, progressively take steps towards bettering your self-custody. Yeah, like, I mean, you have to do your own research. There's no way around that. If you want to be your own bank, you have to be prepared to be your own bank. There really is no alternative to that. I think that, uh, again, like, you know, even for me, right? Uh, I was in this space. I had other products, other services going on, and, and I did my own research, and I was not happy with the available options so, you know, we made our own solution and we ended up making that into a product. But, um, you know, I can only give my personal sort of uh, set of preferences uh, with my own sort of biases, but my own set of preferences, you know, it's like, to me, if you don't have a secure element, like, <laughs> you know, like it's, uh, it's a problem. It really is. Um, and uh, because, you know, you're not getting some very basic sort of set of, of defenses. Uh, listen, any hardware wallet is going to be better than a computer infested with viruses. That is true. Uh, but I think that's a very low bar to expect from a hardware wallet. Uh, I think that you have to be able to survive a certain level of attacks before spilling out the beans, right? Um, yeah. And then, uh, you know, being closed source is, is something that I just personally can't, uh, can't live with uh, for my hodo, um, yeah. especially for seed generation. Uh, seed generation, you, you shouldn't trust even the, the, trust, the, the trusted 
uh, the true random number generator on a secure element. I, it's like that's one of the reasons why we put the dice feature there. Uh, is because you know what? If you're gonna hold real money, or if your money is gonna become real money, <laughs> because number go up, uh, you, you know it's you have to invest, right? I mean, it's like kind of having like a ten dollar bike lock for your three thousand dollar bicycle, right? I mean, why would you do that? So, you know, all these harder wallets are very cheap for the kind of money that people holding them. So, do you know, like, it's, it's like uh, people like to make fun that we keep on, you know, making you harder, but like. I'm not going to stop, right? It's like the security bar is going to keep on getting higher and we're going to keep on making you hardware, right? Like, and, and that's it. That's my personal view of how this thing needs to be done, right? Until I have something that sort of meets that bar of that period in time, I'm not happy. I'm going to keep on making a new one. Uh, it's your choice to buy it from us and, and sort of, you know, have the stuff that we make that we will have a new version in, you know, a year or two kind of thing. Um, if you don't want that, well, then get something else that's been around forever and has the holes that you expect to have. It's uh, What's nice is there is options. Yeah. I think we have to recognize that this is a cat and mouse game and it's constantly shifting. And so it's just difficult to expect that a product from four or five years ago or whatever will stand that test of time rather than you having to continually up your game. And I mean, everyone has to just continually up their game. You know, before Bitcoin... I mean, even the security industry never had to hold like actual secrets of this level at consumer devices, right? Like not, not like this, nothing like this in open source. Like, it, it, you know, I was talking to like a manufacturer that actually makes this stuff for the last, you know, 150 years that puts chips in cars and all kinds of stuff and tries to keep things secure. They just, they just never had to deal with an industry like this. <laughs> They're not used to like people spending half a million dollars trying to break their chips, just to break their chips. It's a, it's a whole other sort of, it's, it's a whole new world, right? And, and, and Bitcoin is very new. All this stuff is new. The Bitcoin curve is not supported by a lot of stuff. So I don't think we're going to get away with just sort of like not making changes to the hardware. I, I think that's just sort of, you know, it's just not possible. Um, if you don't care about that, then get a laptop, drill out the, the radios and the microphones and all that stuff and use that. Uh, just remember to destroy the memory once you're done with it um, with a drill or a gun. Um, because you just never know what kind of information that machine could have licked to itself. And, you know, it's just the reality of it. There, there's just no, it's much easier to do that with a hardware wallet because it's so simple. Um, the tax surface on a computer is ludicrous. I think the other thing with that is also looking at things like multi-signature as well, right? Like, but again, there's complexity with that. So exactly. the user has to trade off with that. And oh, look, in fairness, there is also complexity associated with changing hardware wallets every year or two, right? Because you've got, you might screw something up with nah, changing over and things like that. We made that easy. You just, you just do the microSD backup and you move it to the next one and then you just import it in. It's, that was, it used to be a pet peeve of mine. Right, because I used to have to move harder wallets, and it's like, no, this needs to be easier. <laughs> uh, so, so now you do the microSD thing, and it's done. It really is done. But yes, I, I, I take your point. Right, like none of this stuff is simple, and, and 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 everything is in flux until this industry has you know thirty years on its belt. We're ten years in; it's much better now. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is a theme that I've seen you speak about before as well, which is a lot of people screw themselves out of their own coins, right? And so it's important to talk about backups and how you secure them uh, and also this topic of segregating your coins. Uh, so do you want to just open up on some thoughts on ways to segregate your coins? Like some examples I can think of are KYC coins versus non-KYC coins that you, you might have a separate stash for that. And then you also want to think about it from a day-to-day -day spending, right? So let's say you've got, you know, whatever, $100 worth on your phone, but that shouldn't be the same as, you know, like a warm wallet. And then that is different to having a cold wallet. And then you've got to think about, well, do you want to do multi-sig on that cold wallet as well? So can you tell us a little bit about how to segregate Bitcoins. Yeah, so I think it's uh, you, you can't just have one single device and that's where all the stuff is and that, you know, is just sort of the end of it all. You really have to think it through because, again, number go up. So there's a lot of people who had, you know, like, say, 50 coins in their phone back in the day. And then they forgot that they had 50 coins in their phone back in the day. And that was $10. Right? So So then the time passes, right? And then, you know, now you have... $500,000, right? So now you can't even cross an airport thing anymore without sort of possibly getting arrested for the end of your life, right? So it is, again, in constant flux, right? Price, security, and everything else. So, you know, the same way you check your investments, right? You go in your investment account and you look at your stuff or you do your accounting once a year to do your taxes, right? Why don't you do a security review, right? Once a year. Look at your stuff. You know, again, people screw themselves out of their coins more than they get screwed out of their coins. So the chances of an advanced attack against you are much lower than you just screwing up your coins. So make sure you have backups for all your wallets, right? Make sure these backups are appropriately segregated, distributed in different geographical locations. They're encrypted if they have to be encrypted. They're unencrypted if they don't have to be encrypted. Uh, and if you have encryption on backups, do you have a backup of the backup? Do you have a backup of the decryption key of the backup, right? Make a little tree, get a piece of paper, make a little tree of like, you know, a flow chart of like, here's my wallet, here's my seed, here's my backups of the seed, here's the encrypted backup of the seed, here's, you know, my encryption key of the seed. Do I have backups for that? So just draw it out, right? Um, and then you're going to have there also your phone wallet, uh, your, say, if you're a business, you might have your BTC Pay wallet, your cold wallet, uh, your trading accounts, right? So, so just chart it out uh, in paper off of a computer, please, because you might have a hacker watching your computer and then you just describe all the stuff you have, right? Obscurity on your backup setup is very important, right? Um, and, and then you know, and then you want to look at your your three of 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 Bitcoin security backup, right? And see, okay, these are single points of failure, right? If I get coerced, if I don't get coerced, so you know, should I split this into two? But if you see, when you do multi-sig and you have two wallets, now you have to think about two backups too, really four backups because it's two backups for each, maybe, right? It, it's very important to draw this stuff out. Have a full picture, see where you stand, see if you're comfortable, make sure that if your house catches on fire, all the stuff on the tree doesn't catch the fire with the house. Uh, 
Because as much as it's nice to have a metal thing, you, you just never know if the thing is going to melt to the house, right? You could have failure, right? So do you have an off-site backup somewhere, right? Maybe it's in a different jurisdiction. Maybe it's a different country, right? So, and it's encrypted in there, right? Um, it, it's very important to think this stuff through. I could give you a bunch of examples, but odds are... Um, they are not going to be right for you. Uh, I really, really would like to encourage people to just draw this stuff out, do research, set it up. You don't have to do all the things initially, right? You just slowly improve your setup. Um, and then you do your once a year audit right after the taxes or in opposite of the taxes um, and, and make, make it a thing. Make it my yearly security review. And and also, what's nice about that is you might start finding coins that you forgot you had in some places, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like pocket change, right? Uh, and but because number went up and it's been five years or whatever, right, or ten years, you never know. You might find some very interesting uh, uh, pots of gold in in your setup. So let's not forget those coins to begin with, right? Like, make sure you have. You know, very uh, good uh, note taking of which exchanges you have accounts in, how much coin you have there, the passwords for that stuff, and and you have backups of that stuff. You know, because say an exchange goes down, let's say there is a lawsuit, they might need you to provide some proof of how much you had, or it's just you just never know tomorrow, right? So so just you know. Make sure you have notes of everything and you have a very good picture of your security uh, uh, setup. Your, it's just it's, it's the kind of preparation that really, uh, if anything, helps you sleep at night. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, it, for sure. It's, it's a big one, right? And then you can also think about now the next step, which is super hard still, which is inheritance, right? You have to figure out if I get hit by the bus, which is the ultimate attack, right? I think it was Vijay who said that. The, you know, do you have the means to pass on access information of recovery, right? Continuation of life, sorry, continuation of business for businesses, or you know, pass on wealth to your family and children. Is uh, do you have all this stuff available to them? All the exact information, you know, the derivation paths of everything. So there's a lot to it. Listen, being your own bank. It's never, you'll be definitely easier than it is now, but it will never be as easy as just deferring all that stuff to somebody else and taking an IOU, right? So, uh, so, so definitely do your own research and, and try to figure out all the scenarios slowly. Like you don't have to freak out, but, but go through it. So let's talk through just a basic example. Let's say somebody is, they've left their coins on an exchange and now they're like, okay, I've just heard, you know, Rodolfo say, "Hey, I should, I should take my keys off the exchange, and I need to keep that backed up." So, for example, you know, they could get a cold card, right, and they might have a passphrase. Let's say that passphrase, whatever, four or five words passphrase, mm -hmm. uh, and they would want to have a steal like crypto mm -hmm. steal or billfoddle yep. or cipher safe um, kind of product uh, disclosure. Cipher safe is a sponsor of my podcast uh, but you could be using one of these steel products and have maybe one for the cold card seed and mm -hmm. potentially one for your passphrase yes and you could keep them in different locations obviously yeah. right so uh, another thing i 
I highly recommend this. And this is one of the reasons why we made this thing is like use the microSD backup. Okay. It, it is not fireproof. It is not, you know, nuclear proof, but it's, we, we have this industrial grade cards. They're fairly good. Uh, you know, you still have to you still have clear text backups, right? On your steel plates in different locations and all that stuff. But those steel plates should be very hard to get to, right? So say you have hardware failure, right? You want the means to restore your, your operational stuff or your backups like much easier without sort of really uh, 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 dealing with clear text backups, right? So you know, make two, three, four microSD backups that are encrypted, right? And then the nice thing about that is the the microSDs could be off-site somewhere, right? But they're encrypted. So, uh, you know, it's not ideal if somebody gets hold of them because eventually one day they could try to break it. I mean, the, the encryption on them is quite decent. So it would take quite some time and you'd know by then and then you have moved the funds. But you have this non-clear text backups somewhere more accessible, right? Say safe deposit box, right? You don't want to leave clear backups in safe deposit box because if a banker gets in there, they can see it, right? So um, you have these encrypted backups there or for your multi-sig or whatever, right? It doesn't have to be single points of failure. And then you can have the passwords for that, for the decryption of those microSDs very available. Um, like in your password manager, it doesn't really matter because the cool thing about those is that those don't have money, right? So you can't do anything with those. But uh, in in you know you you break your hardware wallet or you know you lose it or something happens, right? You have the means of very fast, very uh, safely restoring uh, access to your funds without dealing with your more complicated. Uh, you know, wealth transfer plates in the moon um, to somebody else, right? You, you can deal with all this stuff a lot more reasonably and safely uh, without touching computers, without doing any of this stuff. Uh, I, I find that a, a very overlooked uh, issue around this stuff, just being able to operate again. Um, and, and this is one of the most common case scenarios. It's like somebody breaks their wallet, somebody loses their wallet, they need to... Quickly, if they lost a wallet, you know, simply transfer to a new one. That means, you know, they have to be able to to transfer the stuff. They have to have access yeah. to it without going to two different countries to get their plates. Right. So I guess quickly then, just to summarize that, it would be something like, okay, I my cold card went up in a fire or I lost it or someone compromised it, then in my password manager, I've got the encrypted backup password and I've got the micro SD backup in the safety deposit box somewhere. I go pick that up and I would use my passphrase from the, sorry, the password to the encrypted backup to kind of unlock yep. those funds. And then you might need to have a couple of hardware wallets just on hand just so you have something new to put it into as well. So that's something people kind of want, need to think about redundancy. from a practicality standpoint. Exactly. Yeah. Like have redundancy, right? Like have, you know, depending on how much money you have, right? Or, or like how much funds you have or how many segregated wallets you have, like have multiples of it, right? Like make sure they're properly safe. So for example, uh, one good thing that I highly recommend to people is have a initiated 
hardware wallet, like an extra backup of one kept with the seed. So if you ever need, because your one broke, right? Or you want to pass on to family, instead of having them have to figure out how to load that seed, the correct derivation path and all that stuff, you already have a hardware wallet ready to go there with the pin written right on the screen, right? Because it's with the seed anyways. So it's just nice to have redundancy and ready to go. Um, you can't emphasize that too little. So, so that's one of the parts. And then, for example, if you have multi-sig, especially for multi-sig, wallets are complex, right? The, the derivation paths, the scripts, whatever it is, that, however you set up your multi-sig, make sure that you have proper backups that are ready to go for each of the legs, right? Each of the signers. Um, you know, again, maybe set up a second wallet at the same day that you're doing the setup, that you have your, your Faraday cage tent and your hat and your underwear, you, you know, you're already all set up, right? So just do it twice uh, or three times and have that stuff properly set up and just make sure you don't have those things laying around, right? Like make sure that the, the backup redundancy is properly stored securely and all that stuff. But uh, that's, that's very helpful. And one point I think might be a good reminder for people as well is that um, if you're feeling uncomfortable by some of these things, when you first set up your cold card or whatever, whichever hardware wallet or whatever setup, test doing the recovery then, right? So you might spend $5 into that wallet just to have a small amount there. That's right. And then practice deleting and recovering into your backup just to kind of prove to yourself, yeah, my backup works. That's, that's, yeah. I I mean, I, I forget that always when I'm giving people advice, but that's one of the best things people could do. Just go through the process of essentially screwing yourself, right? Uh, make sure you delete, you go into the menu, destroy the seed, and now you have a, a code card dollar seed, and then try putting the seed in back again and make sure everything works and you see those funds again on whatever thing you're going to use, like Electrum, whatever you're going to use. If you see the funds again, you can spend them. I mean, you know, you know, you can recover from backup, right? That's essentially testing backup recoverability, which is, which is very important. Yeah. So that's a good tip for users who are, because uh, I can understand some people who just leave their stuff on the exchange and, uh, well, I mean, they, they might think, oh, I'm too scared about using a hardware wallet. And this is one way to prove to yourself you can recover it. With these 12 or 24 words, you can recover it. And that's what you need to prove to yourself using this kind of idea of, you know, set it up and spend, you know, $5 or just a small amount there just to prove it to yourself. I mean, it's like pretty much all businesses fail eventually, right? So, I mean, you know, even if it's not nefariously, right? Like, I mean, exchanges go out of business, right? And 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 then funds can get entangled in legal battles, right? It's just, it's just part of, it's the cost of doing business. So, you know, if you're not trading, don't keep it there. Figure out how to do this stuff yourself, you know, or, or pay a service to, 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 you know, use Casa, use Unchained, you know, like get the funds out of single points of failure. They're just giving you an IOU. Uh, but if you're trading, I mean, listen, you have to have the funds hot. That's just how it works. Just, just figure out your, your risk assessment uh, and, and threshold that you're willing to go. Yeah, and obviously minimize the amount you leave on the exchange, right? So people should be periodically flushing it out into their own holding rather than leaving it on the exchange. A couple other broader things, uh, just with the open dimes. One question and discussion I've seen is around, you know, what's the failure rate on open dimes and how careful should people be with, you know, people putting money onto an open dime and using that for peer-to-peer trading or whatever? 
So I, I hate the idea of, again, telling people how much they should risk their money kind of thing. So Open Dime doesn't have a backup. Okay, it was not designed for that. It's designed for you to do trades of uh, risk-appropriate amounts, whichever that is for you. It's things in terms of like cash in hand, and you know you have to figure out that yourself. So, Code Card, sorry, OpenDime was designed to fail forward. Okay, so in in most cases, if it's gonna fail, it's gonna fail before it allows you to deposit any funds, right? So essentially, if it gets destroyed in, in shipping or, you know, it happens, right? I mean, you ship like tens of thousands of stuff to, in, to all kinds of countries, right? So, you know, if you see how customs handle packages, uh, so, you know, you will have devices that fail and we do replace those. But so when you put it in the computer, it's, it's going to check itself, right? And, and 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 the way it's sort of built is that you know if there is minor failures in it, it's just gonna fail, and it's not gonna give you a deposit address, which is nice, right? It just means you have a dud, but at least there's no funds lost. Um, there is the case, right? I mean, this is still a manufactured device. Uh, the numbers right now are about one in ten thousand uh, that we'll have uh, like a failure pulse deposit. Uh, it's a pretty small number, um, and, and of those, we managed to recover 100% of them. So these are people who sent us the device either because they, I mean, if you see the things that people have done with these devices, uh, I mean, <laughs> Jesus Christ. No, I mean, like, you know, you have like people who carry them in keychains with like amounts of money that you, you would not believe. I do not want to dox people, whatever, but we're talking about like, like real wealth amounts, right? And, and carry on keychain and the thing is dangling and was not designed for that. And it's like, you know, destroyed kind of thing. You know, people flew over, we took the device over, we took it to our lab and we managed to get the funds out, right? Um, there is ways of taking this to even more expensive labs, depending on the amount that might be worth it. And anyways, point is, uh, chances of them failing and not being recoverable uh, are, are pretty tiny, but still there, there is no backup. So they were not designed for huddle, they were designed for commerce. Uh, they were designed for privacy. So if you want to have your uh, your mixing bucket party where everybody brings a open dime with, or, or a few open dimes with, with the same amount of money in it and everybody sort of mixes in a bucket and then have a physical mixing party, uh, great. If you want to use it to buy a car, if you want to use it to, to buy stuff that you want to be able to just, you know, you don't have to wait for confirmation. Um, it, it's a great device for that. It's not for you to hold a long term. If you want to hold a long term, either use code card or at least initialize the, the open dime and back up the private key. Gotcha. Also, you had some comments around uh, stable coins recently. So are uh, stable coins something to be... Are they something that people should fear or are they something that people should just accept that they're just going to happen anyway and they might actually help people get into Bitcoin so, eventually? I mean, Bitcoin is still in the in the very early stages, right, uh, of of the stock to flow, if you want to look at that way, or of the adoption curve, if you want to, whichever, uh, whichever orthodoxy you subscribe to, it's still early. So Bitcoin is going to be extremely volatile, right? 
and and it's very hard for you to do basic everyday business operations with an extremely volatile currency, right? It, 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 that's the reality of it. So um, people are going to have to hold, especially businesses, are going to have to hold some, some stable coin. That might be the US dollar, right? That's why we have bank accounts and some of that stuff. Uh, very toxic stuff. Uh, so my, my, my belief in that is um, I, I never could really sort of get into the stablecoin stuff because of the Ethereum underlining technology that's like garbage. Um, you know, it barely works and all that stuff. Right? I don't really, I mean, people understand my love for Ethereum already. Um, <laughs> so uh, I think uh, Liquid, and I think there is a few other ones going on right now, technologies, what they do is they essentially allow us to have some of that stuff. They're still sort of federated, but at least they're using Bitcoin security. Right, so they're, they're pegging some of that stuff back to a Satoshi on the chain or whatever it is. The source of truth is Bitcoin. Uh, so, so that gives me a lot more peace is not the best way of looking at it because you know all stable coins will have to have a uh, counterparty. So there is always counterparty risk. But at least now, the, it's not at least on, on JavaScript. <laughs> <laughs> right? right it's we're not gonna have you know a stupid sort of you know bug that causes everybody to lose their money and then you have to roll back the chain so i think what we're gonna end up having in the future or at least the near future is um you're gonna have your gold right which is your bitcoin and you're gonna have your esd which is gonna be a, a stable coin um and what's cool about stable coins is, you know, you could you could use Bitcoin futures as some of the counterparty to stabilize the actual underlying the the, the asset which is going to be that stable coin. You can have you know USD deposits. You can have all kinds of stuff, and you can have mix and baskets of that stuff, right? So you can de-risk it by having a lot of different stuff underlining it. Um, and and I think we can't really get away with that. Like one of the biggest features of the US dollar, right, is its stability for, we can argue to death on, on what stability is, where the US dollar is going, the shit show that it is and all that stuff, right? But to the average person, you know, looking at the bank account, the US, $1 is pretty much that $1 with, you know, say minus 10% of, of purchase power per year. Right, like if you want to be sort of whatever, right? Like some average thinking about that, but at least like that's you know Bitcoin moves ten percent in five minutes, right? It's it's uh, so it's a completely different universe. So um, I really think, and this is one of the reasons, aside from you know having a central point of failure, I think one of the main reasons why the U.S. government went after Libra is that Libra was going to be U.S. dollar based on a bunch of currencies that competes on the stability feature, right? Bitcoin doesn't compete on the stability feature, at least not for now. So um, I think all the stable coins in different jurisdictions are gonna cause so much grief to governments because it's gonna be impossible for them to curtail all of them, right? And then you can have all kinds of jurisdiction arbitrage with them and you can have other coins on top of other coins. It's, it's such a cat and mouse game for governments. It's going to keep them very busy. Uh, 
and and while all these people are busy with all the stable coins, you know, Bitcoin wins. <laughs> uh, so so I, I really like this idea. And, and another very cool thing is, even though they have this counterparty risk, they're not as secure. You can still self-bank the stable coins, right? So you're going to be able to have your hardware wallet having, you know, you have your Bitcoin, and then you have, say, your your confidential transaction-based coin, right, like Liquid. So um, that's aside from all the privacy features you could have in the stable coin. So, so we don't have to sort of make too many compromises on Bitcoin to gain a lot of stuff uh, by having sidechains. That's why I always like the idea of sidechains. It's just, you know, for them to, do, to be done right, it took a long time. Uh, Liquid still has a lot of downsides, but I think it's the least worst of the solutions uh, this far. Uh, so that's sort of like my thinking on stablecoins. With stablecoins, it can also be that the US government might not necessarily crack down so hard on Bitcoin because people might just use the stablecoins. And in some limited sense, for a limited amount of time, it might help the US dollar's dominance, right? In the short to medium oh, sure. term, because more people will dollarize instead of you know, uh, going to other currencies because they'll just go to the US dollar stable coins. And so in some sense, they might not want to, you know, the eye of Sauron might not be trained on Bitcoin for a little while longer because it can sort of stay under the radar for a little bit longer. It's similar to Tor. Think about it this way, right? The US government created Tor. They they want Tor to, to remain Tor because they need Tor too. So... You know, like it's very hard for you to kill something you may need that helps you too, right? So it's tricky. As long as it doesn't take too much of your your, your pie, you might willing to tolerate it, uh, and you might just not be able to kill it either, right? Because you can have a US dollar that's based on euros, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and I, the other thing that strikes that comes to me is uh, one of my recent interviews with uh, Cody Ox or. Eduardo Gomez from Venezuela. And one of the questions I asked him was, how come people aren't using stable coins in Venezuela, right? And I think one of his answers was around education as well. So maybe it is actually that over time, more and more people will use stable coins and Bitcoin becomes like, if you if you really push it to the extreme, right? If everyone just uses stable coins where they need US dollar, Bitcoin really does become the savings technology. And that is where it has that unique advantage that nothing else can really beat. Well, I mean, you know, we get to a point that, you're essentially financializing Bitcoin, right? You know, you add more counterparty risk because of, you know, whatever you're trying to do. But what's nice is that we kind of go back to a gold standard in a way-ish. It's just financialized, right? Like the ultimate settling asset is going to be Bitcoin. And, 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 and it's still Bitcoin, Bitcoin wins, right? Like either way you want to play this out, right? But I think it's important not to try to pigeonhole people into a volatile currency for their stable needs, right? People have stable needs, especially people who actually need their money. They don't have extra money, right? So if you are in a poorer country, right, it's going to be a lot harder to use Bitcoin as a currency because it's volatile. So if you have little money and Bitcoin moved a lot that day, you might have extra little money now. Right. And 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 you don't have a buffer, right? You just don't have enough capital for you to play out volatility. Um, like you know, us in developed countries have, right? I mean, we can deal with some of that with some of that uh uh up and downside risk. 
uh, because we just have more money available. Uh, we have credit, right? So credit is a huge uh, uh, facilitator of playing out this kind of risk. Um, if you are in a poor country, you don't have access to credit, but it, or if you do, the interest is just insane, right? I mean, I remember credit cards in Brazil. I mean, it, it's... <laughs> It's essentially unusable, right? Uh, and you can't build a business without credit, right? People forget that. It's like you just don't come out with like a pot of gold and, and that's how you start your business, right? You, you actually need to borrow or you need net 30, net 60 days, right? And net 60 days in Bitcoin, you don't know what the price is going to be. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point as well. Like the trade credit aspect, I anticipate will still exist, right? Uh, whereas the... You know, business lending that exists today will be a lot less in the Bitcoin world, uh, but it'll take some time to get there, right? And uh, you've been around for a while, obviously. You you were doing you know all this CoinKite stuff back back in the day, right? Even before doing this current round of stuff with you know hardware wallets and so on, you were doing like payment processing back then. So you've been around for a while. Uh, you've kind of seen the cycles and the ups and downs come. Do you have any? Suggestions for listeners who are a little newer on how they uh, should think about you know these cycles that are just coming and going. Is it just you know you just have to have patience? Is that the main message? Yeah, I, I mean you know it's uh, the Bitcoin took thirty years to deliver groceries to me, right? Um, <laughs> it, it promised groceries on the first day. It took thirty years. So um, I think sort of improving money, substituting money, it's going to take longer than it did to substitute improved information, right? So I, I honestly think that the internet was a much simpler problem and a, and a much less, uh, it, it, there's a lot less inertia. There was a lot less inertia, right? Because it's not like the, the libraries were trying to put you in jail because you were trying to, to, have, to write an essay on the internet, right? Uh, when you're doing money stuff, you're, you're, fighting, you're, you're fighting inertia. Uh, and, and that's a much harder problem. So um, I think it's going to take a lot longer than people think it's going to take. Um, I think that if you're early, you're going you're gonna to make a lot of money for yourself uh, in this whole thing. Um, it, it's, uh, it's the nature of being early and, 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 and incurring more risk, right? It's just, just how it works. If you're earlier on a stock, you know, eventually if that company does well, you, you make good money. Right. So, so that Bitcoin has a lot of that. Um, I think that, uh, it's, it's a, I don't know. I'm very binary in terms of Bitcoin sort of, it's like Bitcoin either does extremely well or it goes to zero. Uh, there is no place to go with a deflationary currency. (laughs) And, uh, and uh, listen, it's like, you know, it, it's possible that something better comes out. It, 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 you know, Ethereum is not that. <laughs> That's why, <laughs> you know, it's funny because, you know, conceptually, yes, right? Like there could be way better stuff out there that comes out, that does the job better. It really hits the spot of the market in the way that it needs to, and it overtakes Bitcoin, right? Um, it's just that all the stuff that says that is that right now is none of that. Right, they don't really do anything that needs to be done. Um, so I, I don't think we 
could ever be complacent in that, right? Like this is a, uh, uh, it, it is a fight kind of system, right? I mean, you are trying to take value from another system. Um, so, so that's sort of where I am at in terms of thinking Bitcoin in the future is just, you know, if you want to partake in this, you're going to have to understand risk and understand risk well. Um, otherwise, you're going to lose your pants. <laughs> right. Yeah. Great way to uh, summarize it. Uh, so, look, uh, I think we'll finish it up there. Uh, where can the listeners find all the information? I guess uh, off the top of my head uh, here, we've got uh, ckbunker.com and we've got coinkite.com and uh, your Twitter as well, NVK. Anything else you want to point out? Uh, no, that's it. Uh, um... Oh, that's it. Uh, make sure you use code Lavera as well. Right. Yes. Uh, the uh, when you're buying uh, your stuff. Um, but anything else? Yeah. Uh, well, just uh, just try out Bunker and let us know. Uh, and oh, join the Telegram. Uh, the Cold Card Telegram is great. Uh, there's a lot of help there, uh, and help us improve documentation. That's it. Fantastic. I'll I'll put all the links in the show notes. But uh, thank you again for joining me, Rodolfo. Thanks for having me. I need to win this and get in one more time. So subscribe to the show, get the show notes, and see the transcript at stefanlevera.com slash 152 for this episode. Thanks, and I'll see you in the Citadels. 